This morning we're going to read from the book of Acts, Acts 1-8 and Acts 4-1-13. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That was Jesus in his final words to his disciples. Then in Acts chapter 4, we carry on with the story a little bit farther. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, we gather here this morning knowing that as Christians, we serve you all week long. And we stop in moments to pray to you and to worship you throughout the week, but this is the time when we gather together. And together as, as one family, both here in the room and online, we, we stop at this moment and we join our hearts in worship and in prayer and in focus so that we will be reminded or learn afresh truths about who you are and how you want us to live. We need these reminders, and we need this fellowship. It tells us that we're not alone. It tells us that our faith is not just ours to live out individually, that we belong to a body, a family, a local fellowship. And together we are learning and we are experiencing how we share our spiritual gifts, how we put others before ourselves, and how we look up together. No matter what's going on in the week, no matter what we're feeling or how our health is, or what troubles we've been dealing with throughout the week, we look up to you and we recognize that there is a God who is greater than us. Lord, thank you that these acts bring about a humility in our lives to remind us that we are small and yet somehow we are important to you. And we're blown away by that. We are reminded as, as Dave led us through worship time that at the foot of the cross, we are all equal before you because we are all in need. We are all broken in some way. And we need your grace and we need your mercy. We also need your wisdom to, to know how to live and how to navigate all the thorny patches that we walk through. 
Lord, whether folks are visiting with us today or whether they're here every time we open the door, we ask that your grace will fall on each one in the ways that we need this week. We pray that you'll grant us the wisdom for whatever challenges this week may bring. We pray that you will grant us the mercy that we know how to respond to those around us and to live graciously. So Lord, guide us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing with our All In series today, and we're actually wrapping that up with a message that's about sharing our faith. To set that up, I want you to watch this. The old saying goes, don't judge a book by its cover. And it's true. Don't look at that person who ends up next to you and say, that person is way too different from me. I could not invite him to my church. I can't have my friends see me bringing this guy in. We need to see others as Christ sees them, with a holy compassion for the lost. You know what? We all need God, no matter what the person looks like, or how different they are from you. As Christians, we are responsible to reach out to those around us. Their eternity depends on it. We need to stop worrying about the opinions of others. We need to open our eyes New opportunities are put in front of us every single day to come out of our comfort zone, open our mouths, and speak these simple words. Hey man, if you're not doing anything this weekend, uh, check this out. We're doing something cool at our church. I recently read about a Christmas dinner where one of the guests was a young British-American screen actor, Charles Lawton. Lawton died in 1962, but he was well known in the earlier years of the movie industry's development. He not only acted, but he would go on to become a highly regarded director and producer as well. Well, this Christmas dinner took place at a British manor. And after the dinner, the host family and all the guests moved into the parlor where the host announced that it was their family Christmas tradition for each person to share their favorite passage from the Bible. When Lawton's turn came, he stood and as an actor, he gave a passionate rendition theatrically of the 23rd Psalm. When he finished, everybody was so moved that they cheered and they applauded. They continued going around the room this way until the last person who had not spoken up was an elderly aunt who had dozed off in her chair. And they gently shook her awake and asked if she too wanted to offer her favorite scripture. Not realizing that Lawton, the famous actor, had already recited Psalm 23, she began with her soft, worn voice, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when she finished, There was not a dry eye in the room. Later, at the end of the gathering, as they were beginning to say their goodbyes, the the host who invited Charles Lawton, this famous actor, made a comment to him, wondering about the very different responses that he and the elderly aunt had received after reciting the same psalm from the Bible. And Lawton thought about it, and he replied, I think the answer is simple. I know the psalm. But she knows the shepherd. I chose to begin with this story this morning because it reminds me of an observation 
by some of, Jewish, uh, some of Jerusalem's religious leaders that they made about Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, after trying to force them to stop healing and speaking in the name of Jesus. They remarked about the courage of Peter and John and noted that while they were unschooled and ordinary men, there was this phrase, they had been in the presence of Jesus. And they realized that that changed everything about these early disciples. Not only had Peter and John been in the presence of Jesus, but they were all in for Jesus. Today, as we wrap up this all-in series, we're going to look at some discoveries from the way that the earliest disciples shared with others about what they had learned about Jesus. In each of these all-in messages for the last month or so, we've talked about some aspect of the way that the earliest Christians looked at the stewardship of life. So in the final part of this series, we're going to focus on how the earliest Christians stewarded their faith stories. They saw this as something that they were responsible for unto the Lord. So this message is called Sharing Our Faith. Welcome back here to North River this morning. I love it when we're all together in one service for the summer months. My warmest, warmest greetings to all of you who are watching online. Uh, we're glad that we have so many here on our campus and in this room this morning, but we're glad that you take the time online as well. And I hope that you will continue this habit. We like the way that this breaks down walls. There are some of you who are watching from other states, some of you who have moved away and yet have maintained your tie to North River, and we're really glad about that. I hope that you'll let us know that you're out there and that you'll either send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org, or that you will respond in some way by uh, communicating back to us. You can text the word hello to the number that's up on the screen right now, 781-227-8765. If you're in the audience today, you can do that as well. If you're new here, that will uh, send a text message to our staff and we'll continue the conversation with you. You can do that by going online to our northriverchurch.org site. Look for the I'm New button and follow that link to a connection card. You can fill that out digitally, and again, that will go back to our staff, and we'll get back to you. Or you can go to our Welcome Center this morning, ask for a welcome card, and you can fill one out physically. We'd love to hear from you. In this series, we've been asking one basic question every week. What does it mean for us to be all in for Jesus? We're looking backward and, and asking, what, does it mean, what did it mean for the earliest Christians to be all in, and what evidence do we see of that? And then we're trying to transition that into our time frame. What does it mean for us to be all in for Jesus? So we're going to look this morning at some early church lessons about faith sharing. What is the connection between sharing their faith and being all in for Jesus? I have, I have five uh, observations for you this morning. Here's the first one. Sharing your faith may upset some people. I, I would love to tell you that this is always going to be easy and everybody's going to be thrilled that you want to share your faith, but sharing your faith just may upset some people. Look at what happened here in Acts chapter 4. This is only uh, a few weeks after Jesus had ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit has come with power on that Pentecost Sunday. And just a few days after that, Peter and John are teaching people in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. What did they do? They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. The Acts of the Apostles traces the spreading of the gospel throughout the apostolic era. 
Peter and John were directly involved in the mission of telling people about Jesus. That's what we find them doing here as we open chapter 4 of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. The events in this chapter were preceded by healing a man who had been lame from birth. Imagine that. You'd seen this guy every day of your life, and you walk by him, and he's begging on the streets. He's barely existing, never able to walk at all in his life. And on this particular day, he'd been asking Peter and John for some money, and Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. And then he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise, get up, and walk. And he did. Notice that the combination of this healing and their preaching about the resurrection of the dead, which is not just for Jesus in the past, but the hope of all Christians that one day we will live again beyond the grave, that this upset the religious leaders in Jerusalem. In round one, they were confronted by some priests and the captain of the temple guard. That's meant to be intimidating. So the temple had their protective bodyguards, and the captain of the temple guard was there, along with some Sadducees. That's noteworthy because the Sadducees did not believe in the concept of resurrection. And so they would have been trying to squash that message. They seized Peter and John. They threw them into the local jail overnight. It was too late to have some kind of a hearing and bring them before the leaders of the city. And then the next day, there was round two, a second confrontation, this time with the high priest and members of the high priest's family. This was one powerful, well-connected family, and it all smells of intimidation. Let's make a simple observation. Some people will always find a reason to be upset if you talk about Jesus or you tell them about Jesus. That was true of the disciples, and sometimes it's true in our age, too. I remember one time when a visitor to North River said to me, you sure talk about Jesus a lot at your church. And I responded, I said, well, North River is a Christian church, and he is our Lord, and we do worship him here. And then that person continued on in that kind of foggy uh, awareness and said, oh, but I thought it was a community church. I said, well, that is legally part of our name, North River Community Church, but... We're a community of people who are learning about and finding, and once we find him, to worship Jesus. If that's our downfall, I guess I can live with that. We talk about Jesus around here, and we love Jesus. Disturbing others was not something that caused the earliest Christians to stop talking about Jesus. Let that sink in. It was probably more disturbing in their day with less freedom than it is in our day. We would not have ever learned about Jesus if they had given up. But we share the same faith that's been handed down from the apostles to our day. I'm so glad that they didn't back off because some people got upset. Observation number two. Sharing our faith is the primary pathway for others to come to embrace Jesus. Verse four. But many who heard the message believed. So, the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Verse 4 points out that hearing leads to believing. The Apostle Paul wrote something very simple in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. It says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. While some of the religious, re religious leaders may have been upset on that day, Luke, the author of the Acts of the Apostles, tells us that the number of men who believed grew to 5,000. Acts 
chapter 2, verse 41, says about 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus on that first Sunday when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples with power. Acts 2.47 says that the Lord was adding to their number daily. And now we learn that about 5,000 men, just men alone, had come to faith in Jesus, not counting the number of women and children. So you get the sense that here in these early weeks of the very first church in existence in the world, faith was exploding throughout the city of Jerusalem. This is happening so fast, only several weeks after Jesus had left them. So despite the fear and intimidation factors stemming from throwing Peter and John in jail overnight, the fledgling church kept growing. The process was rather simple. They heard, they considered, they believed. In John chapter 1, John wrote that those who receive Jesus and believe in his name become children of God. And that awareness, that experience was being shared from one person to the other, that they were discovering something new and and they were leading others to embrace this newfound connection with God through Jesus that was alive and that was wonderful. Sharing your faith may upset some people. Sharing our faith is the primary pathway for others to come to place their trust in Jesus or to embrace Him. Here's the third observation. Sharing our faith is based on this very simple foundation. Acts 7 says, They had Peter and John brought before them and began to ask this question. By what power or by what name did you do this? There are three parts of this foundation that they were acting on. The first was the mandate that we find in Acts 1.8 where Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were still working their way through Jerusalem at this point, but soon they would work through the outer provinces of Samaria and Judea and then the disciples would be split up. And they would never be together again, all in, in one continuous body for a long time. And they would take the gospel to other countries and other cultures and other language groups. But they were following these final instructions from Jesus to his disciples. If we are disciples of Jesus, we embrace that mandate. It's part of our responsibility to share with those who have not found the grace of God through Jesus how they find the grace of God through Jesus. So the first part of that foundation is the mandate, the calling from Jesus. Here's the second part. It's the authority of Jesus. Notice the question from the high priest. By what power or by what name did you do this? They assumed that they had authority over all religious expression in the city of Jerusalem. And they weren't authorizing anybody to teach in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter answers very quickly. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. What was Peter saying? There is an authority that Jesus has that was conveyed upon him through the resurrection. You intended to stop all reference to his name when you put him to death on the cross, but God has had the final word. We sang a moment, the cross has the final word. Well, the cross connected to the resurrection has the final word. And they were saying there's something about the resurrection of Jesus that gives him an authority that you don't have. You may have power. You may have recognition. But only Jesus has come back from the dead. And it's by that same power that we healed this man on this day. And then the third piece of this foundation is the leading of the Holy Spirit. We are told right at the outset of 
this response from Peter that the Holy Spirit had come upon him. And so the Holy Spirit was guiding him through his answers. When we act on the final mandate of Jesus, when we trust in his authority and ask for the Holy Spirit to lead us, we are acting on this same foundation. And he will open doors for us and he will open conversations for us and he will lead us to people who want to know how they find the forgiveness of God in the midst of this increasingly harsh age that we live in. Knowing all of this impacts the way that we use or steward our faith stories. Here's the big idea that I want to get across this morning. All-in Christians, that's what we're talking about this month, all-in Christians overcome natural fears in order to share the good news of Jesus with people who need the grace of God. All right, how many of you have ever dealt with fear about the thought of having to share your faith with somebody else? Be honest. How many of you ever dealt with fear? My hands, I have to put both hands up for me. <laughs> True confession, I went all through high school as a Christian terrified about the thought that somebody would ask me the reason for my faith or what it was all about. Being a Baptist kid, that's the way I was raised, in a mostly Catholic and congregational town, mostly Catholic, I, we stood out as a very different group of people. And every once in a while, there would be one of those conversations, and I would get the dry tongue, and my face would go white, and the fear would rise up. And the reason was I thought it was about me. I was afraid I would be rejected. But what I learned in the next few years is when you realize it's not about you, and it's really about him, and we think through how we tell our story of what Jesus has done in our lives, or how we tell people about the gospel, that the fear goes away at that moment in realizing it's not about us. Will you say something with me? It's not about me. Will you say that? It's not. We need to remind ourselves of that when it comes to those moments. It's not about us. It's not about you. But sometimes we're the vehicle that God uses because it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. So why is this true still today that sharing our faith can upset some people, that it's the primary pathway, and that we need this foundation for our confidence of the calling from Jesus, the authority of Jesus, and the leading of the Holy Spirit? In verse 11, we find Peter saying to the religious leadership of Jerusalem that day, Jesus is the cornerstone you have rejected. The stone you have the stone you builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus has always been the cornerstone. Peter is quoting that day from Psalm 118, verse 22, and he personalizes it a little bit. Uh, the actual says that uh, the stone the builders have rejected, and he puts in a personal pronoun, the stone you builders have rejected because he knew that the high priests and others had been part of the group that handed Jesus over to Pontius Pilate. But he said he's become the cornerstone. Psalm 118 was telling us that Jesus always was the cornerstone. The very next part of that verse says, the Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad in this truth. They were showing from the Old Testament how Jesus had always been the central link from the older parts of the Bible to what God was doing in the gospel era. And I would say Old and New Testament get connected around Jesus. 
Jesus is always at the center of what God has been doing. Some parts of the gospel have to be explained. This is partly why this challenge becomes so difficult. Perhaps you've heard some of the the folks who have have often liked to quote St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Ever heard that before? I bet a bunch of you have. I've used that before. I've quoted that before. Here's the problem with that statement. Researchers have gone back into the works of St. Francis to find where did he say that, and what they found is there's no record of St. Francis ever saying anything even close to that. So, historians and New Testament scholars have concluded that St. Francis of Assisi never said that, but in the modern internet era, we've put those words in Francis's mouth. The second problem is that there are some elements of the gospel that have to be explained. That people don't always get it. When I'm sharing the gospel with people, one of the things I often tell people is, I respect that you have a certain knowledge, and I'll ask some questions about what they know about Jesus, what they know about God, what they know about the Bible. And then I'll, I'll say, would you mind if I connect the dots for you? And often people have the knowledge of the history, of essential parts of the gospel, about who Jesus was and what he did. What they haven't done is connected the dots to how it is that we put our personal faith in Jesus and establish that saving relationship with him. And I find when I tell them, I'm just going to connect the dots for you, the lights just start to come on as we put the pieces of the puzzle together for them. Friends, sometimes that's all you have to do is connect the dots with what people already know. I'd like to give away my job that way. I'm not the only dot connector in this audience. We all are, and we have opportunities like that. Peter and the apostles taught Christians to be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have. In 1 Peter 3.15, that was his, his uh, admonition to us, to be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that you have to be responsible for coming up with an answer to every possible objection and every possible question that people might have. Now, it, it's better if you're equipped that way and if you have that kind of mind where you can think about every possible objection. But that's not what the Bible tells us we are all responsible for. We are all responsible for the reason for your hope and for your confidence in Jesus. Why have you put your hope in Jesus? How has he met you in your life so far? What kind of help or healing or hope has he brought into your life so far? This is where you need to start with your story. Peter and John's answer that day was, our hope is in Jesus because he was raised from the dead. It was fresh in their minds. It was only six or seven weeks earlier that this had all happened. Fresh in their minds, and so they're telling the people there on the streets, the power that we have is not our own power. The power that we're going to heal this fellow with and give him back, uh, the ability to walk there that he actually never had in the first place, comes from the same power of God that raised Jesus from the tomb. For them, the resurrection changed everything. And so their stories all went back to that moment. I have no doubt that they saw the same intimidation factors that we're picking up in these clues from Acts chapter 4. So again, let me say this. All in Christians overcome natural fears in order to share the good news of Jesus with people who need the grace of God. 
My own story that I've told several times is I almost flunked my college speech class. I was terrified to talk in front of crowds. Amazing that God would call somebody like that to be a pastor, isn't it? And the simple reality was around this topic of sharing the gospel, what I learned was when I know how I'm going to tell my story and I know what I want to say about Jesus, the fear goes away because I'm not thinking about me anymore and my fears or, or what would happen if somebody uh, acts in negativity toward me or opposition toward what I'm going to say. It's really about Jesus. What do we need to know to share the gospel well. If I've got 60 seconds to explain that, I'm going to explain it this way. Somebody came up with a very simple outline, what we call the creation, fall, redemption, restoration outline. Four thoughts that become really important to us. Creation, that God created a, a very good, wonderful world and he pronounced it to be good. The fall comes in Genesis 3 where people rebel against God and the world that we live in is broken because of human rebellion. But God didn't leave it that way. He brought Jesus into the world, and through an act of redemption, he has made possible the way for us to be redeemed by God and to be made new. And at the end of the story, God is going to restore all things. He's going to restore this world to its brilliance. He's going to restore people to uh, a, a unified relationship with him. And we want everyone to be in on that redemption and restoration side of it. Four words. If you could memorize four words, you have an outline of the gospel. Somebody else described it this way as the four-chapter gospel. That creation is about the way things were at the beginning. The fall is about the way things are. How do we explain the broken world that we live in? It's wonderful yet profoundly broken in some places. Redemption is about the way things can be for us if we put our faith in Jesus and the work on that cross becomes applied to our lives. Restoration is about the way that things will be at the end of the age according to the promise of God. And we want everyone to join in the celebration. I hope that you will take away four words from this morning. If you've never heard this before. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Will you say those four words with me? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I simply have you do that so that maybe it will lock into our minds so that, that in the, when that moment comes and you haven't been expecting and your friend says, what is it that's different about you? How do I find that? Because you have something that I need. I hope those four words will come back. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. All in Christians. Learn to overcome our fears in order to share the gospel of God, the, great, the good news of Jesus, the people who desperately need the grace of God. That's the business we're in together. Let's go out into this world and see what God has for us this week. Father God, thank you that we can gather together, continuing to learn, to overcome our fears, and to realize you want to use each of us as instruments of helping people that you love get connected with you and with your grace. I trust that the, your Holy Spirit, in the right time and the right way, will at some point lead each of us into those kinds of conversations where we feel safe enough and have the freedom to talk about what you're doing in our lives and then to talk about who Jesus is and let the Holy Spirit guide the way. Thank you for involving us in the way that you are spreading redemption throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.